Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Public and private experience over the past decade have both taught many of us the possibilities and the challenges that exist in cyberspace. As we have taken advantage of the brave new world of communication and connection, this podcast is itself only possible today thanks to a variety of cyber technologies, political leaders and military planners have tried to develop strategies for maximizing their utility and minimizing their risks. Yet even the question of how the two can be separated from each other remains open. We all know that victory in future conflicts will depend on how well the combatants master the skills of cybersecurity and cyber warfare, even as we might not know exactly what that mastery might mean in the rapidly changing cyber domain. Our guests today are two students in the War College class of 2020 who have studied and worked on these problems and are here to discuss them. Lieutenant Colonel Joseph A. Atkinson of the U.S. Marine Corps has wide-ranging and diverse experience advising commanders at the strategic, operational, and tactical levels. He served as a regimental judge advocate to a Marine Rifle Regiment during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Wing SJA during the Operation Enduring Freedom. He served as the legal advisor to the Deputy Commandant for Information as the service advocate for intelligence, information operations, and cyberspace. Lieutenant Colonel Richard D'Angelo of the U.S. Army has 20-plus years of experience and expertise leading teams in cyber defense and network operations. Able to operate and succeed in dynamic and uncertain arenas that require team building across multiple stakeholders, he has served as Deputy Brigade Commander of the 11th Signal Brigade at Fort Hood, as well as in several positions with U.S. Cybercom at Fort Meade. He holds a Master's in Public Administration as well from North Carolina State University. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Yeah, thanks, Ron. Appreciate that. It's great to have you both here. So I, I want to ask you both, um, what do you think is the most important single thing that you would want your colleagues at the War College and anybody listening in now to know about cybersecurity that they don't already know? Ron, I think that the, uh, the, the biggest thing is probably you are part of it. If I could send any message to all of my peers, that it starts with that, that you cannot simply rely on someone that has what the military has said is cyber expertise to solve all the problems. Uh, we're all in cyberspace all of the time. And as a leader in the military, you've got to adopt that and not be afraid of it. Right. So, uh, Joe, Joseph, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I agree with Richard, uh, but I take it a little step further. Um, you know, I think we take for granted uh, how interconnected we are today uh, through social media, through our smartphones. So, I don't know if everybody truly appreciates how interconnected everything is and relies on cyberspace. So cyberspace for me is kind of like the glue that enables all these things to happen. It, it ties our critical infrastructure, health systems, financial systems. Everything is interdependent on, on these systems working together. And, 
And I don't know if we truly appreciate how vulnerable we can be to malignant actors that can uh, easily get into that space and disrupt how we do business and how we live out our lives. And, and so, Joe, how did you initially get into this whole question of cyber policy, cybersecurity? Yeah, so make a long story short, I was serving as the deputy staff judge advocate at, out at First Marine Division in Camp Pendleton, California, and my commanding general, then Major General Dan O'Donohue, the current J-7 on of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, was my division commander. and we, we developed a good relationship for two years together. Uh, he then received orders to the Pentagon at the same time I did, and a fortuitous meeting in the halls of the Pentagon where he was serving as the new deputy commandant for information asked me to come work for him uh, and to provide legal advice and help him steer all the different things that go on at the service level from you know contracting to business opportunities to operational type law matters as we, he was getting back into the information and cyberspace arena. So that was my uh, foray into that world. And I served with him for a year until he left for the J-7 and the current deputy commandant and former Marine Forces Cyber Command, Commanding General Lori Reynolds, Lieutenant General Lori Reynolds is now the DCI. And I, I served for her for the last year before I came to the War College. Interesting. And and Richard, how about you? How, you know, how, Not everybody ends up working at uh, with Cybercom. So how did you end up in this world? Right. So as a traditional signal officer, generally, I, I had not necessarily touched that side. And when I, mm-hmm. I got there to go to a joint command center, I listened to Joe and it's similar for me when I worked for uh, Admiral Gilday, who's now the chief of naval operations. He was the director of operations for Cybercom. And I saw not just him, but several other leaders that didn't come from any kind of technical background, and mm-hmm. yet were the ones who were leading the change, uh, to be fair, in combination with, with people that had worked in the IT field previously, it was that combination of those two sides. And it proved to me the point that the expertise that already exists in the military, as far as thinking about strategy, it, it's all encompassed already. Cyberspace, is there's some new and unique differences about it, but the reality is that a lot of the ways that you prosecute war fighting still apply. You've just got to not be afraid of it and think about it and the, what makes it different. But then how do you still apply those same you know, standards of uh, making success in right. achieving the ends that you want? I mean, there's. I was thinking about this as I was reading both of your bios and thinking about how you got interested in this. It, it strikes me that uh, you know, everybody, when they enter the service, starts doing something that they haven't done before. Um, assuming that you know you didn't, you know you you weren't exactly spending your free time leading uh, rifle platoons before you became a second lieutenant. So, uh, but do you think that there's something particularly interesting about uh, the armed forces and cyber that you have? Uh, a relatively small number of people who come from specific technical backgrounds, but who are sort of drawn into this world based on their um, either interest or uh, an aptitude that they didn't know that they had before they started? I think one of the things that makes it exciting to work in cyberspace, for, for me, as a, as a signal officer, it was the first time that I could actually be in the operations. No one looked at me a little bit different, right? If mm-hmm. I find myself in a, in a division in the Army, at best, I'm a support staff guy. And look, there is a real need for that, so I'm not knocking on that, but that's right. about as far as you can go. In the cyber space environment, if you're in uh, our Army Cyber, Marine Force Cyber, the actual you know, U.S. Force, uh, you know, U- U.S. Cybercom, 
you could be anything. It doesn't matter. Are you a logistician? Are you a signal officer? It doesn't matter to me. Are you good at doing operations? And I think that's what probably made me so excited about that opportunity was this new space that needed new ideas and creativity in that you know, so, some of my background was still useful. And that's why I'll often talk about cyber defense and cyber operations, not necessarily offensive cyber, because that's not where my expertise laid. But mm -hmm. understanding the interchange Inter interconnectivity between all three of those is is what was really exciting. Hmm. And I don't know if you guys have compared notes about this, but do you get a sense? Is there are there different attitudes or different approaches to cyber policy between the Army and the Marine Corps? Joseph, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think the uh, the approach is somewhat similar in a lot of respects. I think where we differ is how do we actually employ it. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we had a good working relationship when I was at, uh, the deputy commandant, which I'll refer to as DCI. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked very closely with army cyber out of Fort Belvoir. So several meetings, uh, exchanging of information, notes, training, how do we implement this out to the operating forces? So I think we're all moving in the same direction and, you know, despite inter-service, you know, rivalries or bantering, right. uh, the, the relationship between us, Marfor Cyber, and Army Cyber has been very solid to this point. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I, this gets to the question of at, at what at what stage um, is there a real sort of joint cooperation um, in cyber? Is it at Cybercom or even between um, between the services at at other levels? Yeah, so for me, I think the the jointness starts probably at the combatant commands. Okay. Um, so, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been uh, liaisons placed within a few of the uh, geographical combatant commands to actually work the cyber uh, process on behalf of the operating forces, the combatant commanders, then back to the functional combatant commander who makes the decisions on when and how cyber is actually going to be deployed um, after they do their uh, leveling of bubbles with uh, the Department of Defense and so on. Uh, how well... Uh when you when you came here to the war college uh, and you were you brought with it your interest in these matters in cyber um how did you find the level of awareness or appreciation of cyber issues among you know what is otherwise a you know a very distinguished uh, group of you know upwardly mobile field grade commanders the kind of your fellow students at the war college I don't, yeah. So for me, it was, I think it was about what I expected. Those that yeah. had worked at the strategic service level who are exposed to the decision making and I'll say the churn surrounding, you know, how are we going to approach cyber? How are we going to make it more mainstream? How are we going to incorporate it into, you know, the operation or strategic level decision making and operations? Uh, so those individuals having come from that world understood or had a better clarity on what cyber was and what it actually meant. Those that had not worked at the high operational strategic level um, did not quite fully embrace cyber. There was a lot of skepticism amongst our discussions, especially in seminar and other forums. And so, but as they got more introduced to it, uh, the War College did a pretty good job of, of getting introductory level classes and uh, discussions in the seminar format that allowed them to kind of start to understand how that fits into the uh, tactical, high operational, and even the strategic level. So, I, so I think they uh, they turned it around, and just like anybody else, when you're when you don't know something or you're not familiar with something, 
there's a tendency to look at it with a eye of skepticism mm -hmm. and not uh, fully embracing a new capability that will be something that will be somewhat mainstream for us uh, years down the road. Ron, yeah, I'd like to add on to that. The other observation, and you know, Joe and I were in the same seminar, se Seminar mm -hmm. 11, an awesome group. It, and you could sense that everyone had the appreciation for the dangers uh, mm -hmm. in cyberspace, both public and private. But there's not a great understanding of how the military even organizes itself in cyberspace. And so to Joe's point about the war college doing a good job of educating, I thought they did a great job of taking the time to say, hey, this is how we ourselves mm -hmm. execute operations and our structure in cyberspace. But still, we're, we're not doing such a great job at educating about the simple pieces and parts of what is cyberspace. And when you think about how easy your average military officer can describe land features, sea uh, features, mm -hmm. no one can describe, it's rare to find someone who isn't uh, an information technology person or hasn't worked in a cyber unit who can talk about the physical layer, the logical layer, or the persona layer with any form of you know basic knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that, that over, it becomes a concern because if you can't really think about it in the basic elements, then I don't know how you're going to lead it at the strategic or operational level. Mm -hmm. Because you are going to have to lead it when you get to the strategic level. Yeah, absolutely. Are, it's going to be there. So, well, well, Rich, you, Rich, you opened the door, so I'm going to ask. So what are the differences between those levels that you just mentioned? Sure, I appreciate that. The, so those those three basics, uh, right. you know, the, the physical layer it is everything that enables it in the sense of, look, you got to have a, you, you have your hard drive, you have wires, you know, you have undersea fiber optic cable, satellite in the sky. That's a physical thing, as well as we're using the electromagnetic spectrum for those signals to cross. That's a physical thing, and physical things can be broken. They can, they can get, uh, you know, uh, intercepted in different ways. And then you have the logical layer of, you know, all the things that make up cyberspace in the sense of your operating uh, systems, your uh, algorithms, software, those things, right? And then you have the yep. persona layer, which real quick is, is the two basic senses. One is it, you as a single person have several personas within cyberspace. Your login to your work computer could be a persona. Your email address at another place could be another persona. And so you would see an environment in which one persona can be operated by multiple people or one person can operate multiple personas. You add all those three together and you get that sense of, of this thing we're calling cyberspace and all the that helps you then see the the advantages and the disadvantages and where the vulnerabilities might be mm -hmm. i mean they when, when you when you whenever you deal with it right they talk about how right most of the most of the challenges uh, occur between the keyboard and the chair right this is a matter of the the person who's doing the the work uh and it goes back to a point that you both made early on in this discussion that uh people need to realize that we are all part of cybersecurity, whether we know it or not, simply by virtue of the fact that we use this technology. But what do you think is the uh, the biggest hurdle to that has to be overcome to help people uh, better appreciate those basics so that, and especially to help future strategic leaders overcome, uh, over, you know, to, to understand the basics that will allow them to lead and manage uh, cybersecurity and to, uh, and to engage thoughtfully in conversations about it? 
Yeah, I'll jump in here, Ron. I, I think, uh, and I want to tail on to what kind of what Richard was describing, you know, sure. and it, it ties into what the question you just asked. And I think the biggest hurdle is, is ensuring everybody understands that while cyber may be a big unknown on how it actually all works and comes together, you know, it is, it's not witchcraft. It is another, <laughs> uh, it's just another capability that has now been placed in the commander's toolkit to prosecute you know, tactical and, op- and operational level operations. So, you know, it, it, no different than when you're out there surveying a battle space, you're looking for what is the key terrain, you know, whether that's right. on the battlefield, but cyberspace has key terrain as well. So the terms and the concepts don't really differ all that much. And I think once people understand that it's just another capability that we use in our co- combined arms philosophy and how that can actually help and assist a commander make decisions or prosecute and, you know, successfully carry out his missions, then I think we'll have a better feeling and a more comfortableness surrounding cyber, how it operates and what it brings to the table. It's funny, your comment about uh, witchcraft reminds me, there's the famous quote from Arthur Clarke, the science fiction writer and theoretician about the future, said that any technology that's sufficiently advanced beyond the understanding of the observer is indistinguishable from magic. Right. If I don't understand it, it might as well be magic. Um, but but that is the problem, right? Is to to so so what if I understand what you're saying? You're saying is people have to understand that it's something they can understand, and that they should make the effort to try to understand it. Correct. Is that, is it, that it, fair? It, yeah. It, absolutely. And what I'm kind of getting at here is, you know, it's part of that ever changing idea that the character of war, you know, changes over time, while the nature of war kind of stays constant. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can look back through innovations throughout history and how it changed the, the how we actually prosecute the war on the battlefield. Cyberspace is going to it's just the next evolution. It's the next changing characteristic and in, in how we fight. And once we understand that, then it'll, it'll be a much more easy. It'll be an easier thing to uh, to embrace and to actually mm-hmm. utilize, and especially once you understand how, how you can employ it. Uh, and, and timelines and efficiencies that it brings to the table can really benefit uh, the joint force. Well, what? how do we conceive of, we were talking earlier about uh, cyber uh, cyber policy, cyber strategy, that's both, de- that can be defensive, but can also be part of the offensive. How, what is it, what does an offensive cyber strategy look like? Well, what, what we're doing, so we should be glad that General Nakasone pushed for the change to what he he's calling persistent engagement. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, having been, it, it, you know, I was in CyberCom from 2013 to 2017. Right. And at that time, a lot of the focus was on deterrence and they utilized nuclear deterrence strategy. And the idea was that we were, we would hold back our greatest, you know, capability and, and use it in reserve and then say, that, Hey, we could use it, but we won't hoping that nobody else would do bad things. And that didn't really work. Uh, it turns out in cyberspace, you've got to be like a boxer and jab a little bit. you got to put the adversary in an uncomfortable position. So yeah, sometimes maybe you do use your uppercut and maybe sometimes that's in reserve, but you, but you got to be out there jabbing. Uh, and that's what he's calling persistent engagement. And so that, you know, provides an opportunity for some real synergy between all three cyber types of cyber operations. So the military likes to say there's offensive, defensive, and then the actual just network operations. Mm-hmm. 
and it's really a legal definition of what the difference between offensive and, and defensive is, uh, as far as what type of effect and the permanence you have in the adversary, and then you get in the law of warfare as to why you did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have that persistent engagement uh, and, and persistent presence from an intelligence standpoint, you've got the adversary in a position that's a, you know they're less uh, able to do what they want when they want. You you have now an opportunity to get cyber dominance when and where you want it. Uh, and then you could maybe take some different risks in how you do defense. So I, I'm a proponent that we should shift our strategy from being more perimeter security focused in defense in depth to data protection focused in mm-hmm. the way we do defense in depth. Not to say that, that the perimeter is not important, but it's not as important in a resource constrained environment as it is to actually protect the data. And mm-hmm. so th- there are ways to go after that in today's technology that we should uh, change towards. Well, and, and it gets back to uh, a central, uh, let's say, paradox of information technology, right? It's the whole purpose of information technology uh, is to make it easier for people to communicate what they're allowed to communicate when they're allowed to communicate it. Um, but also the more available you make information to uh, people who are entitled to see it, the more possibilities there are for people who are not entitled to see it, to see it as well. Um, and this is what I'm, I'm curious about the, the relationship between cyber policy and the older versions of questions of information security and intelligence, right? You want to, you want to read the other guy's mail, but you don't want him to read your mail. That's true. Whether you're talking about steaming open envelopes or intercepting packets of information. Um, and in what ways does current cyber strategy try to to deal with the problem of wanting to make sure that it's easier to share information within the force, but also possible to protect that information from prying eyes? Yeah, so I think you're, what you're getting at there, Ron, is kind of the, the business uh, private industry innovation teamwork uh, mm-hmm. that we're currently working with, at, at least when I left the, the, the Pentagon and, and to come here to the War College. You know, so we were looking at industry leaders, uh, some of our big uh, uh, firms like Amazon, Microsoft, um, Google, on how we could, you know, upload to things like the cloud to have secure uh, repositories of information that would enable us to operate uh, in the geostrategic environment. And so that industry partnership there, we're working with them in order to try to protect our data by still giving us the ability to link in so that we can pass our own information. But as you're looking at intelligence in the cyber world, again, it just, I'll echo my point from earlier. It's, we've been using intelligence uh, to supply information since the dawn of warfare. Right. And cyberspace, all it does is just enhances it. it, it it's mutually supporting in some respects. You know, you're going to get intelligence to the human intelligent or human chain that can then be utilized in a cyber type operation, or you can gather intelligence through cyber capabilities that can then be used at the tactical and the kinetics in the truly kinetic sense. Hmm. So they're mutually supporting um, endeavors or disciplines. And again, we shouldn't just think because it's cyber, we're talking zeros and ones that it's going to change the nature of intelligence work or intelligence fieldcraft. Rich, do you have anything to to add to that? Yeah, Ron, the other side of that is cyber norms. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, th- there's 
I guess you could say competing thoughts between some of our near peer adversaries, specifically Russia and China, who have uh, with the Shanghai uh, corporation uh, cooperation, the SEO, they set up some ideas of cyber norms. But of course, their version would be all about sovereignty and uh, the ability to really control their people. And those aren't the kind of cyber norms we would like. But that doesn't mean you can't have anything out there. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the United States is pushing an idea of, well, how about some non-binding voluntary norms? So it's sort of a middle ground where you just you, you kind of acknowledge that we're all fallible. We might make some mistakes. And unfortunately, in cyberspace, a mistake such as the not Patia uh, virus attack that happened, I think it was a couple years ago, spilled into the civilian space and shut down several ports and caused a lot of damages and monetary effects. So you want to limit those kinds of things. And when they happen, you've got to call out the, the whoever did it. it, it God forbid that it is ever you know an American mistake. If we're being persistently engaged, if we're persistently engaging, we might make a mistake, and we should. And if we do, we ought to be responsible for it and, and make up for it as we you know I think we would in the world. Uh, and when we see adversaries do things in ways that aren't acceptable, which could be, hey, you can't use that third, fourth party, uh, ad you know a uh, uh, person to do a nation state attack. That's not okay. We caught you. Here's the evidence. And the challenge is the the willingness to show your intelligence to say we caught you doing this bad thing that as a as a group of nations we don't think is okay. But when I do that, I, you might know how I found out, right? That's right. the intel gain loss is so difficult in this environment. Uh, but the, if I could one more on that on the on the cyber norms, it's also internal. We have to look at our own set of authorities because we're finding ourselves in a place where the military might know through intelligence that an adversary is on a commercial entity's network. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's even a, uh, a defense contractor's network. We as the military might know that they're there stealing information, but we might not be able to do anything because it's not our space. And so it reminds me of the Coast Guard, right? If if a drug dealer is moving cocaine through a submarine in the Atlantic Ocean and a Navy ship comes across it and they know exactly what they're doing, they can't do much about it unless they have a Coast Guard team on board because then it's a criminal action that the Coast Guard is authorized to take. And so do we need to have a cyber-type Coast Guard element that is that in-between the two? And when you really think about the Coast Guard and what they provide – not just for the criminal element, uh, but also think of all the safety features. We accept that the Coast Guard says, hey, you know what? If you want to operate a boat, you have to do follow this, these safety features. Right. And if you don't, you're gonna, you know, you're not going to do it anymore. You're going to lose your license and whatnot. So should we have a process that says if you want to operate in American cyberspace – here are the standards. If you don't, we, you know, there's some sort of penalty or, you know, mark against you. It obviously would be, take a lot of thought, but, but it's interesting. We don't have that for cyberspace. True. And it's funny, you were talking before about, you know, I, uh, uh, these days we see lots of examples of how it's very difficult for states to admit or want to admit that they might have released or not released a virus into circulation that could have negative impact on people. Um, uh, so the interesting way that the same terminology that we use fits in cyberspace and in the physical world as well. I am, 
I want to wrap it, wrap this up. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to give you each a chance to say something specifically. Uh, you touched on it there, Rich, Richard, with your comments about some kind of a coast guard or some kind of norms. Um, um, I want to ask each of you briefly to say, is there a particular sort of development or innovation in cyber strategy that you think would be important going forward for the future of sort of uh, U.S. national security, but also for this for global uh, cybersecurity norms? Yeah, so I think what I'll end with, Ron, here is, is, and I'm not sure if I'll answer your, your question directly, but it That's kind all right. of touches as, as on. I say in, as I say in seminar, you don't have to answer, you just have to respond. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, but I but I agree with with some of the sentiments that that Richards and you just spoke about on cyber norms and what are some of the innovations, you know. And I, and I think uh, I see it in my community. Well, not my community as as judge advocates or or legal advisors, but just this under this idea that authorities are very nebulous and they don't give us the room to maneuver. And what I think we need to realize is that is something between the executive and the legislative branches of government to work out. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to be able to, when we see something uh, in cyberspace, like Richard was describing, uh, affecting a corporation or an, another entity, you know, how did we come about that? How far can we follow that trail? Does it violate Executive Order 12333 uh, that prevents basically us looking at uh, individuals here in the United States from an intelligence purpose? But you could qualify it as intelligence, probably. And so there's going to be need, there's needs to be some type of uh, consensus, some kind of adjustment, or maybe it's an executive order with with the blessing of Congress, or maybe even some type of uh, law that Congress can pass, similar to the uh, you know, DISC or the Defense Support to Civilian Agencies, uh, where we can make some concessions in the cyber realm in order to bolster U.S. cybersecurity, uh, both from a national perspective. And a private industry, since all or both are so intertwined in how we generate, uh, you know, funding, how we generate uh, capabilities to prosecute our defense forward. And so I think that's going to be a collective effort that needs to happen at the highest levels of our government uh, and that the military could then benefit and provide assistance to civilian agencies and civilian uh, private industry. Great. Thanks, Joe. Richard, final thoughts? Yeah, you know, Joe and I, we agree uh, almost across the board on all that stuff. And so I would say it, he's right. And in other words, it's the diplomacy and the information and somewhat the economic, a little bit maybe on the penalty side. But it, it's but it's that big diplomacy and big information power that leads the way, not the military. I think the military is doing the right things as far as we've established cybercom and subordinate units. We're headed into persistent engagement. And the military is creating its ability to defend itself uh, and affect adversaries just fine. But we've got to build those partnerships outside of us. And as Joe was pointing out, it isn't just about military cybersecurity or cyber ability. It's cyberspace is an international space. We've got partners like Brazil who are who need our help just as much in determining how should they better do cyber operations. And so as we use diplomacy and information to say, hey, this is what's not right in, in a cyber norm sense, we also need to use it to say, and this is how to do it best. Uh, and I think we're on the right track with our national cyber strategy and leading the way and not allowing adversaries who would have cyberspace be used for things that just don't match American values. You know, So 
in the end, America will defend herself in cyberspace. That's that's the overarching thing for everyone to understand. And as always, when you that has to be said, uh, and then effectuated. All right. Well, uh, it's a good, thoughtful, and hopeful, forward-looking way to end this conversation. I want to thank uh, both Joe Atkinson and Richard D'Angelo for joining us for this conversation and a better piece. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. Hey, thanks, Ron. It's been an absolute pleasure, uh, and you too, Richard. All right. Absolutely, Joe and Ron. Appreciate it. You bet. And thanks to all of you for listening in today on A Better Peace. Please send us your comments on this program and all of the programs. Send us suggestions for future programs. And uh, if you subscribe to A Better Peace, and why don't you subscribe to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast on the podcatcher of your choice so that other people can find it and subscribe and learn from these conversations. We're always interested in hearing from you and we're always interested in growing our audience. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.